This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. again everyone and welcome to the Cincy Shirts podcast. It's episode 39. Today on our show, Bronson Arroyo, former pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates, Arizona Diamondbacks, Boston Red Sox, and of course the Cincinnati Reds. So I'm starting now to not only be in the weight room and hear the mamas and the papas and the Beatles and Credence from my father, which was all good stuff, but it didn't really hit me like a ton of bricks. But now I hear Stone Temple Pilots and Nirvana and um, Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. And it's like, whoa, this is coming from a different place. It just felt completely different. He chatted with Josh and Darren about his years with the Boston Red Sox, including that first World Series win. Well, that first World Series win for them since 1918. He talks about being traded to the Reds, picking up the guitar at age 22, and hanging out with his friend Ed, as in Vetter, off of Pearl Jam. Be sure to listen for the promo code at the end of the interview, and as always, you can use that to save 20% on your next Cincy Shirts or Old School Shirts order. And speaking of Old School, uh, that's for you folks joining us from Boston, Arizona, or Pittsburgh, and we're really anywhere across America, actually. We have a lot of cities that we're covering right now. And uh, with that, let's head into the back room of Cincy Shirts Hyde Park Store, as Darren and Josh talk to Bronson Arroyo. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from Cincinnati. She came down from Cincinnati. Just maybe think of me once in a while. I'm at CincyShirts.com in Cincinnati. How long we, how long we on for? Shooting the breeze. Usually do Try an, hour. an hour. Long form. Stretch it out. See how many how many Indians can we get out of here? How long? You're on a question count. I can do that. How many yeah, podcasts have you done? <clears throat> oh, just regular podcasts? Oh, I've only done a couple, probably. I mean, you know, podcasts, well, they've been popular now for a decade probably, right? But, yep. you know, being at the ballpark every day, you just never think about anything else except just really being at the ballpark. Just always dialed in. Yeah, I mean, well, you're, I mean, you're just, you're at the park every day from 3 o'clock to 11 o'clock. And it's like if you have 20 off days in eight months, you're not thinking about, like, what am I going to do? Yeah. You're just thinking, I'm just going to fucking stay home. Home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so it's like. You just wouldn't go anywhere. Like people are like, you never been to Bogarts before? I'm like, I've never been there. I've never been anywhere. I've been to the bars in Mount Adams because I lived right there and I could walk there. Yeah, that's about it. In so the off season, you just take off for well, the, the, the off, sunny. In the off season, I'd be in my hometown in Florida mostly, and then I would come back here for Reds Fest, and I'd stick around. I'd stick around sometimes after the season for a week or two, and then I would come back for Reds Fest and stick around for a little while. But um, and and after that, there's only I mean, bet- besides the holidays, there's only. A month? Right. Well, you got to be back in And then you're out in Arizona, Arizona. right? Yeah, exactly. Um, when did you, when was your first year with the Reds? 06. So you, you had a couple <coughs> years in Florida for spring training. Yes. How nice was that? Uh, that was awesome for well, me. How far was that I mean, it was 90 you? minutes from my house. I was going to say, yeah. So I drive an hour and a half. I had a boat down there. I was living on the boat in spring training, like <laughs> two miles from the ballpark. You well, lived on the boat yeah, during dude, spring I'd, training? Yeah, dude, I'd wake up every day, go to the ballpark, come back. <laughs> have people over we'd, we'd go out 
watch a spring training game on the TVs on the boat and cook steaks for people and just uh, cruise around in the bay oh, there the in Sarasota. S- the, bo- the boat walls could talk. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Is that like the Leonardo DiCaprio boat? <laughs> it, was on, it was a 50-foot Sea Ray. It was a nice boat, but it wasn't a DiCaprio boat. That's, <laughs> that's like a 100-footer probably or more. It's <laughs> not a Tiger Woods boat. So uh, let's start. In, uh, let's, we'll get back there, but then let's start with Yeah, we'll today. get to the boat. Don't worry. No. You're here today doing a podcast with us. You have free time now. Like, what's it like? Like, how long has it been since you've just been able to wake up and go, I don't I don't know what I want to do today. I don't know if I have to decide what I want to do today. I rarely have days like that, but... Still? But you still rarely have days still, like that? still, yeah. It's actually, I've been a little bit busier now than I was when I was playing because... <laughs> When you had to be at the park, you didn't think of it as something that you had to do. Like, it, it was just it was part of the course. Routine. I'm going to the ballpark. I'm going to the ballpark. People leave you alone because they know you're at the ballpark. They can't call you. I mean, these days, guys have cell phones in their lockers. But when I first got to the big leagues, nobody had a cell phone. You couldn't have a cell phone. If it rang, it was $1,000. What? Your cell phone rang. It was $1,000. That was pre... This is pre-iPhone. From the Reds uh, or from MLB? No, from from, from the Pirates. That's when I was okay, with the Pirates. Okay. You know, that's before everyone's life ran off of a cell phone right. now that everyone's life runs off the cell phone there was really no way that they could stop it and so now you can't talk but but you're basically secluded at the ballpark you know you're not having a lot of interaction with outside people so um you never thought of that as an obligation so i used to think you know just whatever i'm going to the park today but now that i'm <clears throat> i could do whatever i want i i wind up saying yes to everything because people <laughs> they know i'm free and they're like well man you got nothing to do can't you come to this charity event can't you play this golf tournament you know, people are just asking to and do, do stuff all the time. Do you enjoy being able to say yes, or do you just yeah, I do. feel you no, have I do. a hard time saying no? For now. I, I, have a hard, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm glad you didn't say no to be here, but... Uh, I don't like to say no. That's definitely true. I don't like to say no to people, but um, sometimes, you know, I, I feel like, man, I've got to carve a little bit of space out for myself. But, you know, after a day and a half of being in my hometown and being at home, I just think I, I need something to get into here. So it's, it's just always putting stuff on your schedule because you enjoy it. Is that is that tough for you then too? Is to like not have to be somewhere every day that you feel like you have to fill up your calendar? Yeah, I think if I had a totally open ended like, all right, we're gonna give you the next thirty days and you can't put anything on your schedule, it drives me nuts. Really? But but when I say that, I that I, I'm when I say putting stuff on my schedules, most of the time is being just being with people, right? So I could I consider like playing a round of golf or going out to dinner with some with some friends as something to do that you're putting on your schedule. But sure. that, that stuff never ends. It's like... Cause it's you want, the just sitting around not doing anything absolutely. that gets to you. I re- yeah, I really... I mean, I can sit in the evenings <laughs> and uh, watch some Netflix and do nothing, but it's hard for me to do that day after day. But if you're a pitcher, like, are you kind of signing up for, like, a starting pitcher is, like, having to be at the ballpark every day and knowing you're not going to play? Yeah, I, Do you didn't, know what I, mean? I didn't. Like, I didn't sign up for that. That's the thing. Okay. So I played shortstop in high school. You know, you play. You played shortstop your whole life, and you pitched both, right? You played every day. It's like it's like a good high school football player is playing both ways, right? He's not. He's not just playing on one end of the ball, right? So you know, I get to the rookie league, and they're like, "Hey, all right, you're gonna." You're not going to pitch for four days, so you're going to sit here and do this chart today. You can do the radar gun tomorrow, <laughs> and then you're going to do something else the next day, and then you're going to pitch. And it was like, man, this is driving me nuts. But after a while, you got used to it because you realized that your body needed the rest. And as you got a little bit older, it was harder and harder to turn it around. So you you, you welcomed the off days to get a massage and, and, and get in the hot tub and not have to do anything. Did you end up liking it after a while, or just that became your role? Yeah, no, I actually I enjoyed it then. You know, I mean, I, I think there was times there was there's a lot of pressure on you when your whole life revolves around 32 times a year, 
right? You're, yeah, yeah, I didn't think about that. You're going to take the ball 32 times a year, 34, 35 in a good year, maybe, if you, if you can skip the fifth guy in the rotation or if you make the playoffs or something. But, um, you know, when, when, you're, when you know that there's a lot of pressure there, so sometimes you wish you could probably be more like a position player and play a few more games so you could even out your, your really bad games, right? You could kind of yeah. like flatline those. Um, and have them fit fit into the, yeah. the equation a little easier. <laughs> but overall, I'd say, you know, it was nice to have the four days to really prepare yourself and feel like you weren't still sore. You know, if it was like the old days and we were pitching in a four-man rotation, which I never did, I, I pitched on three days rest in 06 three or four times because I asked Jerry and Aaron to go to four-man rotation, but he wouldn't do it. Hmm. I don't know what that would be like for a whole season. I don't know what it would have been like to pitch only three days rest. I think you could have probably just taking your bullpen down and throwing a little easier and not played so much long toss in between. Probably pulled it off, but but it was nice to have the off days, especially getting older. Now, if you had, say you had a, a good game, did you just not wait, you just can't wait to get on the mound again? Or like, say you have a bad game, is it the same thing? Like, I want to get that memory out of there. I want to, can't wait to the next game just to, right. just to you know, erase whatever happened before. Or? Yeah, it was, it was probably equivalent to like, I don't know what it'd be equivalent to. I feel like sometimes when you're playing blackjack, you know, if you if you win three or four hands in a row, and then you, I'd and, say it and, kills you, and you lose one that you should, you think you should have won, you're like, ah, oh, no big deal, right? But if it happens too many times, then you start getting that panic feeling. Well, pitching's kind of the same way. You would if you were having a good streak where you you won two, three. It, you wouldn't even have to win, but if you just had solid quality starts three and four times in a row, then that was kind of a cushion. If you really got your butt kicked once, it was like ah, oh, you could just blow it off. But you get your butt kicked that second time. And now you, you, you've been sitting inside of this for 10 days. You've been sitting inside the mentality of, man, I, I, you know, what are people thinking of me? The media is chewing me apart a little bit. You know, whatever's going on, you're trying to work on something. Maybe something's bothering you physically. Maybe you can't get your cutter to move like it used to or your curveball's not there and you haven't been able to figure out why. Um, if, if those start stacking up, if you have three bad starts in a row, man, it's, it's a miserable time. You, you know, doing the bucket, it's nothing worse than being on the road. You're like in St. Louis, you just got hammered the night before, only pitched two and a third, and you're having to do the bucket, which is stand out there behind that net in uh, shallow center field, and, and all the guys are throwing the batting practice balls into you, and you're putting them in the bucket, and then you take them into the guy and dump it in, and keep doing that. And that's like really a punishment? It, no, that's what, that's what you're supposed to do after every start, but it feels like it's, uh, it feels like it's fun. When when you had a good outing, when you get hammered, it felt like punishment, and so, you know, it'd, it'd be like, yeah, you would need you would need um, some sort of a break. Now, if you if you kept if you're pitching good, the forties in between is no problem. It's not like you're itching to get to the next start. You want to get to the next start, but it's just your mind's clear. Yeah, you're clear. It's a nice four easy days. You're gonna get your work in. You're really dialing in your workouts. Maybe you can push a little harder in the weight room on some certain things because you're 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 free and easy because you're not thinking about why you didn't get it done. And I think that's honestly probably the, the hardest part about the game is just the mental side of it. You know, trying, I always used to tell guys, like, you know, if, you, if you've already dialed in, if, you, if you're a solid major league player and you've already done it for an extended amount of time and you know that you're a 275 hitter, even if you're having a really bad month, there's just no reason to totally try to reinvent the wheel and, and, and constantly grind on things. So when, as the years went on, when I would get my butt kicked multiple times in a row, <clears throat> If, if I had a pitching coach who was really wanting me to, well, let's work on this and work on that, I would I would work on it with him, but I'd, I would want to dial it back a little bit. Like I was gonna be, when I was doing well, then we can really work on something. When I was doing bad, I was like just gonna put take take my foot off the gas pedal for a minute and just relax. And, and because sometimes you can have a horrible outing, yeah, you could have a horrible outing and not have bad stuff. 
right? So it isn't always correlated to that, and sometimes you can, you can overthink it. So I used to just be like, well, I'm just going to relax and let's see what happens. Now, unless there was one specific thing that I really knew was going wrong, which was, you know, I can't hit the outer outer half of the plate against righties with my fastball. I just either missing for balls or it keeps coming back to the middle of the plate. Then you have to fix that. But if you didn't feel like something was really wrong, I was just going to try to blow it off as easily as possible, just knowing that I think over 32 starts, I'm going to give you 20 good ones and it's going to work out. Really? Yeah, but a lot of guys can't live like that. A lot of guys can't live like that. You know, a lot of people, I've, I've had an easier time just kind of brushing off anxiety and stress and just doing what everyone says, which is getting in a car wreck. You can't do anything about it now. Just move on, right? But we have a hard time moving on. And, and, and athletes are the same way. They have a really hard time moving on to the next step and, and letting the negative be in the past. Well, I thought I read something once about you, like your routine and, and your your general health and your workout stuff, that that started when you were like a young kid, right? And yeah. So did that help you to... You always hear about like superstitions and stuff people pick up on the way that work for them once and they never abandon it. But it seemed like the way that you prepared to play baseball and stayed in shape and why you had so many years without injury started way, way a long time ago. Yeah, and that's what I always, I always give credit to to that, and which is really giving credit to my father. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Key West, Florida. We were on Big Pine Key. We were in Key West when I was really young. We were up in Big Pine by the time I started playing baseball, about five or six years old. And um, so it's like, that's like a 30-minute ride up from the, from actual Key West. And my father had all these group of friends that were into powerlifting. This is like, you know, the, this is the late 70s going into the 80s. And a lot of these guys are like big steroid user guys. and But they're all lifting squat, bench, and heavy really uh, serious. You know, they'd go to work construction all day and come home. And I'd sit in the gym and watch these guys benching four, 500 pounds, squatting six, 700 pounds. Man, Jeez. they were like animals. And um, I, my father... Uh, just observed a kid who could backhand a ball at age six and throw it across the infield like a 12-year-old. And he just said, oh, wow, I'm just going to put him in the weight room, make him a little bit stronger, and I think I can at least get him a free education in college, right? That was really the inception of it. But we already had a weight room in the house, and he already was living a life where he took protein and took supplements and worked out heavy and went to work, and he lived that life already. So it was easy for him to transition that into me. And so then you take this, you know, this six-year-old kid who weighs whatever, probably 40-something pounds. And, you know, I have DVDs that they put on ESPN one time because they were asking me about if I had any photos of it. And I said, I've got some old footage because no one would believe this stuff if, if I didn't have the video of it. And I'm, I'm eight years old. It's uh, 1985. And I weigh under 60 pounds. And I'm maxing out on squat, bench, and deadlift over a two-day period. And we would do that twice a year in be when baseball season wasn't going. And you'd kind of build up to it. And so I, I squat, I think, 235 on that thing, deadlift 255, and bench 130 pounds. At how old? At eight years old, weighing under 60 pounds. Oh what? And, I, you know, but I was doing 200 sit-ups at a clip. I was doing 1,000 jump rope at a clip. I was hitting a heavy bag, a doubling bag, and a speed bag. Like, I, you know, my hand-eye coordination was extraordinary, and it was being fueled by what he was doing with me. And so... You know, and I'm taking supplements and we're eating decent, you know what I mean? I'm getting rest and we're carbo-loading two days before we're playing. Like, you know, he's he's coming at this from a standpoint of a professional athlete much 
you know, yeah. younger than, than the average I mean, person were would. professional athletes even doing that stuff back then? Back then, a lot of them weren't, exactly. Yeah. And so he was just kind of ahead of his time a little bit. And a lot of people thought he was nuts, you know. They thought, man, you can't put this much weight on a kid. You're going to stun his growth and all this. But he just didn't see it like that. He, he saw it as I was, I was fueling this machine, actually, in some way. And so by the time I got to the rookie league with the Pirates, you know, you saw all kinds of things going on in guys that, that, that didn't affect me, which was just being homesick, um, you know, not being able to deal with the fact that they're away from their family or their girlfriend or, you know, not wanting to put in that type of work, never have been in the weight room before, mm -hmm. you know, and the grind of being in the rookie league, you know, it's 100 degrees in Florida and there's nobody at the games. I mean, there's like four people at these games. you got like two scouts and somebody's girlfriend and a mom, you know, and you're playing, <laughs> you're playing these games yeah. and after eating a sack lunch and, and working out all morning you know, just like a spring training practice. So, you know, you're, you're exhausted all the time. But, you know, for me, mentally, I had been doing this and we never missed a day ever. It was it didn't exist. There was no such thing as like, you know, well, I'm going to skip out on the workout today and the baseball because I'm going over fishing or whatever. Like everything was planned around it the same way my life was planned around Major League Baseball. Yeah. Right. So I did all those other things and I had a great time as a kid doing plenty of things. But it was always After you here's the two, two or three hours yeah. it's carved out of the work and then and then we go do our thing. So that foundation really made it easy for me to be a major league baseball player, play for eight months and not get tired. You know, I'd, I'd be with the Reds 2008, 9, 10 guys like Johnny Cueto mid-August, you know, we're around the batting cage taking batting practice at 4 o'clock on the field, and he's talking about, ah, oh, Bobby, he's like, I can't wait to go home, man. I just want to go to relax and have a beer in Dominican Republic. And I used to think, Johnny, come on, bro. We got six weeks left, dude. And the difference between, yeah, we're not going to make the playoffs probably, but the difference between your record, if you win three more games or if you lose three more games, is going to look completely different at the end of the season and into arbitration and into your first contract. And, uh, you know, it was hard for guys to stay focused in that time. And for me, I felt like I could have played year-round, man. You get a game of the ball every fifth day, 12 months out of the season, it wouldn't have bothered me at all. But you you weren't always a starter, right? I mean, in Boston, you, you weren't a starter, were you? No, I pretty much was always a starter. The, the times that I wasn't a starter, so uh, I had a little bit of bullpen time with the Pirates in 2000, 2001, and 2002, but I was bouncing back and forth okay. from AAA, and I was starting in AAA. Oh, gotcha. So I'd start in AAA, I'd get called to the big leagues, I might start a game, they'd put me in the bullpen for a month, gotcha. I might start another game and go back to AAA. So it was this constant wheel, but I was basically a starter. Then when I got to Boston, I started in AAA all of 03. When I got called to the big leagues that first year they really didn't need another starter so i was in the bullpen gotcha and then i became a starter in 04 yeah. so the, the, i'd say well the meat and potatoes of my career 22 years i probably had 25 or 30 bullpen appearances and i had gotcha. you know five, five or six hundred starts so what was boston like let's start there with i mean the curse you know had finally been lifted i mean what was that like to be a part of the team that well, you know, when I when I first got so I got I got claimed off of waivers from the Pirates. Okay. You know, people don't know sometimes how volatile the game can be. I'm sitting at home, I'm building this little house that I still live in now, building this house with my father and my uncle by hand, and I remember I was spray painting it that day and I got this call from the GM of the Pirates and uh, I was like, That's weird, Dave Littlefield's calling me. I don't know what that is. And so I pick it up and he says, Hey Bronson, he's like, Does Dave Littlefield GM of the Pirates? And I go, Yeah, and he and he says, uh, you just got claimed off waivers by the Red Sox, you know. We took you off the 40-man roster, and we needed a room, uh, room for Jeff Supon, and you got claimed off of waivers. And he said, "You know, well, good luck, have a nice career." You know, something like that. It well, was just. And how long had you been with the Pirates? I've been the Pirates for eight you? years. They drafted me. I've been with them for eight years. But you know, there's just no, there's no, there's no loyalty, there's no loyalty in the business of sports. 
and I'm sure it's that way in everything. You know what I mean? When it comes down to money and it comes down to best decisions for the whole of the company, they could care less about your personal relationships, your friendships. I've been with this team for eight years. I grew up in Pittsburgh, let's say. Any of that stuff just goes out the window. So they just, you move on. And so I, I went to the Red Sox. I get to that first spring training and um, Theo Epstein, it was the first time that I actually got like true honesty from anybody in the front office of a major league team. So Theo Epstein calls me into the office uh, about one week into spring training and he says, Bronson, I just claimed you off waivers, you know that. He said, you're not gonna make this ball club. We got way too many guys here, you know, that are gonna already establish on this team, but I can't afford to lose you. I wanna keep you in the organization. So he said, I'm gonna keep you here in big league camp the whole time. Just relax, just do your thing. And you're gonna be here till the last day because I need to hide you until um, everyone's rosters are full for opening day. That way, when I put you back out on the waiver wire to clear so we can keep you, um, no one will want you. And I said, okay, cool. So, so we did that and I wound up going to AAA in Pawtucket and I had a great season there and I wound up throwing a perfect game in, in August. Right. Um, and that kind of propelled them to saying like, we're going to have to call this guy up because Japan was starting to really make a good offer to buy me. Wow. And I would have had, I Did would you have, see that coming? No. And I, I would have had to say yes to that. You know, both parties would have had to agree. But, but you know, when you're a guy who doesn't throw hard and you keep hearing those whispers, you know, I'm a winner everywhere I go. But, but you keep hearing these whispers like, oh, maybe he doesn't throw hard enough or he's too thin. You keep hearing all these things. You know, if Japan comes calling and they, they offer you a few million bucks and you've been making, you know, $75,000 in the minor leagues and you've already been down there, been playing for eight years, you know, you, it starts getting a little tempting. So Theo was kind of understanding that pressure was coming down the pipe and they called me to the big leagues and I had success right away in 03. So that off season, I was at home and Theo called me and again, it was kind of a breath of fresh air to get this honesty from somebody because in baseball, everything is so is secretive. They don't tell you anything, especially when you're young. And so Theo called me and he said, hey, I just want to let you know, you're going to be on this team no matter what, in 04, unless you come into spring training weighing 300 pounds, like, you're on this ball club. <laughs> and you're like, I can handle that. <laughs> yeah, I can handle that part, right? So, um, so it was nice to go into to, into 04 spring training when we wind up winning that championship, but just knowing I was on the club and having a little <coughs> ease of mind. Yeah, yeah. And so that, that, that the year... The pressure was off. That, the pressure was off. And so that year when the season started... Um, they let Byung Young Kim be the fifth guy in the rotation, but he basically was telling me like, hey, be on your toes because this might not last, and it didn't. So I started the season as a starter because he was hurt. He jumped in the rotation, and about after three starts, they pulled him out of the rotation, and he said, hey, I'm giving this back to you, man, and don't 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 let him have it back. Because, the, uh, the, you know, Byung Young was a guy who kind of, he ruffled some feathers with the way that he approached the game a little bit, mm -hmm. and he was basically like, hey, you know, f*** him, you need to... Uh, you know, go out there and do your job. The way I can cement you in here is the fifth man in the rotation and you won't go anywhere. And I immediately went out through eight innings, one run in, in Toronto, and then backed it up at like seven and two, um, seven innings, two runs in, in Minnesota. And then it was then it was just us five the whole time, which was me, Kurt Schilling, Pedro Martinez, Tim yeah. Wakefield, and Derek Lowe. And yeah. the, those guys pretty much ran the table the rest of the year. And so that season was awesome. I mean, you guys were the Yankees, the I feel like that was like the height of the rivalry in recent years, that season culminating with the championship series that year. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, it started in 03. So we lost to the Yankees in 03. That's when Aaron Boone hits that home run right. in game seven. Right. We're up five to one with five, we're up five to, we're up five to two with five outs left to go and Pedro's on the mound and we don't pull him and that's when they tie it. 
In the eighth, right. they go on to win that game. And, you know, Jeez. that was actually the first time I really realized what New England was about because I'd been in Pittsburgh all those years, and I got called up in 03, but I was only there for two months, and I made the playoff roster just being there for that short amount of time. So I pitched in that series out of the bullpen, the seventh and eighth inning, and I was always coming in to get Soriano, Jeter, and Gary Sheffield out. And um, when we lost that series, I went back to Boston, got in my car, and I was driving home the next day, and it was the first time I had listened to talk radio to sports radio in New England and people were calling up and just, I mean, they were freaking out, man. I mean, they were like literally saying like, I might kill myself. <laughs> like, I'm not going to work. My life's ruined. Like, it was like, whoa, dude, something's going on around here that is in a whole different ballpark than anything I've Pittsburgh. known about Pittsburgh. <laughs> Absolutely. So by the time 04 comes, I understand the consequences of this series and we get into that series and we're down 03 and it was like... And then no, and the, no baseball team had ever come back from 03. Right. I think maybe even at that point, no professional... I think one one hockey, hockey series maybe. Yeah. Other than that, but no other NBA, sports. Yeah, NBA and, and baseball, no team had ever come down from 03. Right. Jeez. So you guys do it, and then uh, who'd you face in the World Series? It was the Cardinals. Oh, the Cardinals. It was the Cardinals, yeah. And it was it was weird because it was it was kind of an afterthought. You know, we were so hell-bent on trying to get over the Yankees because, right. you know, we were, we'd win 100 games, we'd win 98 games, and we'd win 02. It was like this back and forth, we win the division, they're, they're the wild card and vice versa. It always just felt like this war man it was unbelievable because you got to remember you're pitching in the american league too and there's no pitcher hitting in that lineup so right. not only you're facing this outstanding lineup but you're facing an eight and nine hole hitter that have 20 home runs each right you know you got Jorge right. Posada yeah. hitting the like eight hole man it was like it was never a breather to, so to get through the you know deep into a ball game and pitch six or seven innings you know in yankee stadium was was hard and so by the time we we got through that series we get to st louis and we made two or three or four errors in game one and we still won game one and after that it was just kind of like it was just downhill it was just no thought that we weren't going to win the world series yeah it was destiny at that point so when did the cornrows become a thing that was uh, that was earlier in that year. Yeah. So well, well, it actually started way back in the pirate days. Okay. Right. So that the inception of that is I'm in AAA in Nashville, Tennessee. That's AAA for the Pirates, and we have a, um, a couple of Puerto Rican guys and a couple of Dominican guys that I had been with since the rookie league, and one of their girlfriends or wives was was doing a bunch of their you know afros in in um, cornrows, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'll try it. So they put my hair in cornrows, and, and I had it once in a while, and then it'd be out, and then it'd be back in. And in the midst of that, I'd get called to the big leagues once in a while, and sometimes they would be in. And so Lloyd McClendon was the manager, <laughs> and Lloyd, you know, he would call me in the office and just rip my head off, man. He would just be like, you know, what the f- you got in your hair today, boy? And I'm like, wow. The, the, the same thing Pokey Reese has his in his head. And he'd be like, get that out of your hair right now or I'm sending you back to Abel. Really? You know? Oh, dude. He used to, I mean, well, I remember one time he called, I, I dyed my hair blonde one time. And me and this kid named Jimmy Anderson, we both got our butt kicked that day, a couple days before that pitching. And, and he called us in the office and freaked out on us because we had dyed our hair. And he's smashing his fist on the desk and saying, you pumpkin pie haircut and freaks, I'll send you out to, to, to Abel. You know, and but that was the stuff you had the uh, the abuse you had to deal with when you were young because you you weren't established in the game and they didn't want you doing anything that to could be yeah anything that could be perceived uh, as you think you're cool. Uh, don't dye your hair. Don't wear glasses on the field. Shut your mouth. 
eat food last, take a shower last, be first to the clubhouse, last one to leave. That's just how it was then. It's not quite like that now. But, you know, so that was the inception of the cornrows. So then when I get to Boston in 04, I just realized we got a really rowdy bunch of guys. So at the end of 03, um, a lot of people don't know that at the end of 03 that that um, everybody um, shaved their head on the team pretty much. So Millar, it was like around, it was probably around August, and Millar had said to me, hey, shave my head. We came back from somewhere, and he was struggling, and I shaved his head in the locker room in Boston. And when we got... Uh, the next day, he comes to the ballpark and he's, he starts screaming, "You got to skin it to win it! You got to skin it to win it!" So he just keeps saying that to everybody. Malar has this way of peer pressure in everybody. So the next thing you know, one guy shaved his head, then another guy shaved his head, then another guy shaved his head. So everyone had shaved their heads, and um, except for two guys, which was Johnny Damon and Nomar Garcia Parra. Damon ain't cutting that. Nomar said he was getting married, <laughs> and he goes, "If we win the World Series, I'll shave it right after the wedding and send you guys a Christmas picture." And Johnny just refused to do it. Nobody knew why, but he was starting to grow his hair out. So in 04, he shows up to spring training. I never forget mm-hmm. Millar's running around the locker room going, dude, you guys got to see Johnny Damon. He looks like Jesus Christ. Dude. It's <laughs> unbelievable. And he had that beard and the long hair. And it was like, what? it was such a departure from what you remembered of Johnny. <laughs> he just had a plan. Huh? Yeah. And so he, guys are going to screw it up. Right. So when he, when he did that, that whole, by the time 04 came, this locker room was already very tight from 03 as well. And it was a rowdy, rowdy locker room. Like, I mean, it was a bunch of grown men like 35 years old superstars and they just you know were wild man I mean you had Pedro and you had Curtis Laskanik who got people don't know a lot about but he was a reliever and he was he had two screws loose he made Derek Lowe seem like he was a nun and Derek was nuts himself but then you had you know you also you had Millar and you had Ortiz and you had Manny Ramirez and he's growing the dreads and Pedro's got an Minkiewicz yeah exactly Minkiewicz is there and you've, you've just got a really you know, kind of strange group of guys and everybody's doing their own thing and everybody's kind of growing their hair out. So I thought, you know what? I got to throw my hair back in cornrows. And so we we're in, I remember forget, we we're in San Francisco and I had them done. And, and the first person who saw me was Schilling in the, in the, in the hotel lobby. And I thought, oh man, that's the last guy I want to see me with cornrows in my hair. And he, he was ripping me a little bit, you know, but then I started this streak where I didn't lose. And I didn't lose for like 17 or something straight starts. If I if we, if we got beat, I, it was a no decision. Or if we came back when I came out of the game, and I just that's what got me the three spot in the hole in the, in in that rotation yeah. in the playoffs. And um, I beat out Wakefield and and, and D'Lo early on in the playoffs for that spot. And it was because of that that streak. But once it started, I couldn't I couldn't stop doing it. And then by the end, it became a thing because people in New England, you know, they love the team so much. So by the time I op- started against the Yankees in Game Three. In Fenway, the night uh, that morning, there was hairstylists all around Fenway Park putting people's hair in cornrows. Oh, that's so awesome! <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's cool. And, and conversely, then you get to Cincinnati, and uh, they're selling the one of the giveaways was a hat with your flowing locks attached to the end. Of right, it. right, yeah. So that that's what happened was the cor- the cornrows led to me growing my hair out because it it had been getting longer to put it in cornrows, and then I got to that weird in between stage, and I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna ride it for a while. So all through '05, I pretty much wore a hat everywhere I went the whole time and then eventually I got over this of the real curly poofy stage and figured it out <laughs> so you win the World Series with Boston and you're you're there for two more years or another year one more year 05 I'm there all of 05 and then the beginning of 06 is when they traded me so I mean you win a World Series you're part of the team that like breaks the what how long it had been it had been uh, 1918 so it had been 86 years yeah something crazy yeah Jeez. And you're right about the fans there. I remember watching a documentary on HBO talking about like sports fans and they had a segment on that year that Boston won the World Series and there was a guy saying that he had always gone to the game with his dad 
and his dad had recently passed away, and he was there, and the, he was, I believe, watching the game that you guys were going to clinch it, and he felt like he shouldn't be there, so he went to the cemetery, and he like broke into the cemetery at night so that he could be at his father's grave when the game ended. Right. And he said he was um, sobbing at the grave when they won, and that a security guard came up to him, and he, like, apologized. He's like, I'm so sorry, you know. And the guy's like, look around. And he, like, showed, showed his flashlight. <laughs> yeah. And, like, all these graves had, like, People sons crying. there with, yeah, with their there. dads. Yeah, those like, are the stories. That's insane. Like, I can't I know. wrap my head around when, that. When, when other guys like Griffey would ask me, is it really that different playing in New England? You know, I'd only played in two places up to that point. So yeah. I only had this comparison to Pittsburgh, which was, in theory, quote, unquote, a good sports town, right? You know, I would always say two things. One is, after we won the World Series, I, I could go anywhere. We stayed there for a long time doing these autograph sessions. And everywhere I would go in the city, people would never walk up to you and say, man, congratulations, you won the World Series. They'd always say, thank you, man. Thank you for my grandfather who was in the hospital who just saw it on his deathbed. Or, you know, for my, for my grandparents who didn't get to see it and they were hanging on all these years. It was, you know, and they would be crying. Like, every yeah. person would walk up to you just crying, you know? And then and then the other story was the day after we won, they said the cemeteries were completely full, that people were reading the newspaper articles to the tombstones. And, uh, you know, it's just something you're not going to find in, in, in a lot of places. And, and you could really feel it, you know, being in the city. And that, now that they've won, you know, three more <laughs> since that time, it, it's, you know, they're still passionate about it, but it just feels different. It, it really felt like life and death back then. It was a, you know, you'd, you'd talk to some of the older people and they'd say, you know, they'd say, I, st I still have this bottle of champagne that I was about to open in 86 when Buckner missed the ball. Yeah. And they said, I've been waiting for this thing for that time. And my kids, I woke them up out of bed. They were five years old. And now, you know, it's been all these years and they're grown up and they're watching this with it. You know, there was people that would text me from all over the country just sitting on their couches crying because it meant so much to their family. And I'd never been around a town. You know, I didn't know that. I grew up in Florida, and sports was not that big of a deal in Florida because there, we didn't have any any baseball at the time. <laughs> yeah. And we had one football team, the Dolphins. You know, but I didn't. I, I lived in a small town. You didn't. You didn't know that there was a part of the country that was revolving around this this thing. Yeah. Oh, man, that's fascinating. So you get the call. You're coming to Cincinnati. Yeah. You're leaving. You're leaving all that that you just <laughs> talked about. I know. And you're coming to Cincinnati. Well, not not only not only was it. Not only was it a great ride in 03 and 04, we win the whole thing. 05, we have a great season. I have a really good season. I think I went 14 and 10, led the team in quality starts, youngest guy on the staff. And um, we get beat in the playoffs by the White Sox, and they go on to win win the whole thing. And so I'm, I'm thinking about 06, and I bought a place in the back bay there, and I'm like, perfect, this is going to be awesome, man. I'm, I'm finally established. I'm, I, I signed a, a three-year deal, undervalue for them, because I really love playing in that uniform. And then five weeks later, I'm in spring training. I never forget, I pitched against the Orioles that day, and I had a really good, a really good outing. Some of my friends were there under this tent having some lunch with their family that was in town from New England, and we're talking, and Stephen King had come by the writer and, and Steve yeah I know weird day totally random yeah. day Stephen King comes by and, and hobbles I, your legs no I talked to him on the phone a couple of times I, I talked to him on the phone a couple of times because I had made that cover album at the end of 04 and on the cover album I did Everlong by the Foo Fighters and then there's this middle section where you can't understand what Dave Grohl is saying and so I didn't want to try to make something up so we asked Stephen if he'd write a part and speak it on it and he said send me the album how does that happen what? like how well, do you decide to pick him, him. and how does he agree to well, do he's, it he's a huge Red Sox fan. 
Okay. He and lives in Sarasota? No, 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 no. He's from up in Maine, yeah. and he owns yeah. some radio stations, and he also had chronicled, I guess, the entire 04 season. And I still haven't read the book yet, but there's a book that he wrote from day one all the way through, maybe watching all the games either on TV or what? in the stadium. And in the book, somebody told told me that he, he starts with... You know, I'm, I, you know, I don't really know the, who this Bronson Arroyo is, but as the, as it's gradually going, you see him start saying like, "Oh, this guy looks like he'd be a frontline starter in the major leagues," and he's blossoming in front of my eyes, right? So I have a crush on Bronson. So you're seeing these things, and so so we we asked him if he wanted to do that part, and he said, "Send me this, the music, and if I like the music, I'll do it, and if I don't, I won't." So we sent him the song, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, it sounds great." So he he does this part, and it's awesome part that he wrote. In the middle of it, and uh, and um, where's that clip? You got that clip somewhere? I don't think I have it. And it's it. a, it's a normally somewhere. inaudible line from Dave Grohl. Yeah, it's just like some mumbling back there or something. But you can hear exactly what Steven's saying. He's <laughs> to, he writes forever. Yeah, <laughs> I had never met him in person, so he comes by that day and he says, "Hey, Bronson, man, I shook hand. I, you know, we talked for a second, blah, 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 a few minutes, and then I'm driving home. <laughs> I'm driving home an hour and a half to my hometown where yeah. I live because I'm going to collect all the stuff I need for." Um, it's an off day the next day, and I'm getting all the stuff I need for my apartment and for the place I just bought. And I'm thinking about what do I need for the season, and we're about to get going. And Theo Epstein calls <laughs> my me. Life could not be better. Yes. Balloon flies <laughs> across <laughs> the street. Theo calls me two hours later. I'm sitting on my porch. I was talking to one of my childhood friends, and Theo clicks in, and I said, "Oh man, I gotta go, dude. I think Theo just traded me. There was no reason for him to call me." And I click over, Ugh. and I go, "Hello," and he goes, "He goes." Uh, Ah, uh, Bronson, he goes, I got, I got some news I don't really want to tell you. I said, you traded me. And he goes, yeah, to the Reds for Willie Mo Pena. Willie Mo, that's right. And I, I just said, okay, man, I'll see you at the park tomorrow. And I hung up, and I was so irritated. And somehow uh, a, a writer from the St. Petersburg Times had heard about it, and he shows up at my house like 20 minutes later, man. I was just like fuming. I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't think I even talked to him. But I was just so irritated. The reason I was so irritated is because I, I love routine. I love knowing where you go to eat. I like I like the people you hang out with, how you get to the ballpark. You know, I love knowing the clubhouse guys. It takes a while to get established in a yeah. city, and I was just there, and it was like, this is... For the first time. Yeah, yeah really. for the yeah. first time, yeah. and I signed a multi-year deal. And I also said, when I signed that multi-year deal, I'm not signing this, this undervalued deal that my agents don't want me to sign to be traded for t to Tampa Bay for Julio Lugo. <laughs> and they said, we have no plans of trading you. But that was the two GMs that were, had taken over the job when Theo walked out in the gorilla suit. I don't know if you guys remember that, but Theo Epstein had had a beef a little bit with, with the, the second guy in command. John Henry owns the team, but the second in command was a guy named Larry Lucchino. And him and Theo were butting heads. And Theo just quit and just walked out in a gorilla suit so no one would know it was him and got in his car and left and that was like this whole story. So they gave Jed Hoyer, who's still a GM now, I think it was somebody, and... Um, and I'm um, thinking of Ben, ben I'm, I'm drawing a blank on Ben's name, but they gave these two guys the, the job. They were underneath Theo, and they said, okay, you guys will be a tandem and be the GM, and they're the ones that negotiated that deal with me. So when Theo came back, he's the one that traded me, so he wasn't really the one that said to me, we won't trade you, but it was like, come on, dude. It's like the organization is, it should be under the same... You know what I mean? The same guys. You guys said you had no plans of trading me. I mean, how does that change in five weeks? We haven't even played a game yet. And to this day, the, you know, I've been around Theo a lot, but I've never really asked him point blank why he traded me, but I'm going to get him one of these days and ask him. This is so... Is, is, it doesn't bother is me. Is closure? No, it doesn't bother me at all. I mean, I, I, once I got established here for one year, I, you know, then I made this place my home, and I yeah. would have been just as pat pissed if somebody traded me from here. So it's not... It wasn't really about where I was playing. It's just about that I like to make places home, sure. and I don't want to move. So it was th that was really the whole thing, but it gave me the opportunity to be a pitcher not having to worry about going to the bullpen. 
in Boston, there was always going to be that chance that I'd be the swing guy. Yeah. That they'd be like, hey, you're going to pitch out of the bullpen for a while and then start. And I would have never made the money I made in the game if they didn't give me the opportunity to come here and take the ball every fifth day and just leave me alone. So it didn't take you long to adapt here? Was spring training over by that point? There was two starts left. So it was 10 days left. And I pitched. I threw my first one in Sarasota against, I think, the Phillies. And I, I think I went five innings or something. I don't remember. It was a mediocre game. And then I went back and pitched against Boston on ESPN that I just left, and I went seven innings, no runs with David Ross catching and punched out ten and punched out Willie Moe three times. David <laughs> Ross catching. And, oh, that's yeah, great. and some of my buddies were in the crowd from Naples with a big, with a big old sign saying, nice trade, Theo. <laughs> yeah. but, How weird is that? Yeah. You know, the uh, team you love, dude, now you're... It was, it, was, it, was, it was equivalent to, like, the only time I've had that feeling, really, was pitching against the Reds in 2014 in Arizona. Diamondbacks. Yeah. Did you just want to beat them all? Just... <laughs> just line up. No, no, because they were your friends. No, it was yeah, the guys. You wanted just... Co to be in the box. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and you were, you know, and I could, always, I could always separate, you know, the man sure, from the of business. Course, of course. So I, you know, I love Theo, man. He was, all, he was always great to me. You know, he was 27 years old or 28 when he took over that team, and I was 27. We were basically the same age, maybe a year apart. Jeez. And when he had his first spring training meeting in '03, they let him take over the team because they didn't think they could find anybody to really be better than him so like you know what we're going to wing it and he had that first meeting he stood up in front of Nomar Garcia Parra and grown men you know what I mean and he was turning bright red like a little kid who was standing in front of his class for the first time trying to do a book report really absolutely he was totally fish out of water and you know you could sense the fact that this wasn't his thing but you also sensed a very very smart guy and very cerebral and you knew that you know in time he was going to be he was going to be the man yeah so what were your first impressions of the of of the Reds organization? What did you already know about them or I honestly didn't know anything about them at the time because when you were playing in that rivalry in the in the two years there, 03 and 04 and 05, you know, we make the playoffs all year, win the World Series once, we're knocking on the door the other two times. You're on ESPN every night, you know, you you, you feel like you're the center of the universe. I didn't pay attention to the National League at all. I mean, I barely probably even knew that I had pitched against Aaron Harang in, in, in 04 in Fenway. Okay. I, you know, I, I wouldn't even barely even remember. I would have known, I would have remembered Ryan Friel because I played against him in the minor leagues and a few things here and there, and you obviously knew Griffey and Dunn because he was such a big guy. But, but I didn't nothing know, about, like, the history of the team? I didn't or, know. I didn't. You know. I, I knew I knew the, the 70 stuff because everybody knew that. But yeah. um, I didn't know a lot about what was going on at that current time. I didn't know who was on the team, really. Yeah. I didn't know who was in the rotation. I didn't know anything about anything. So I, when I got traded, I really, it was the first day I walk in and, I got to the spring training. It was after practice was over, and Griffey was still there, Harang was still there, and Kent Merker was still there. Kent and um, Merker. yeah, Merker immediately just said, "Looks like our karaoke team just got a little bit better." <laughs> and uh, and, then I, and I and I met Harang, and they said he's our number one guy. And I had no idea who he was. I'd never seen him pitch before. I pitched against him, but I just, you know, like I said, when a National League team sure. comes into Fenway Park, it's like, oh, we're just going to kill these guys. But you know, you think about who they are. It was just like. It was a, you know, it just wasn't something you paid attention it to. It wasn't the Yankees, yeah. so you didn't have to care. And I, if I would have played them, we would have played them, you know, throughout the whole season multiple times. You would have known more about them, but you only get to play interleague play against a team like that once in every five years or something. Then I met Griffey, and, and, and you know, I knew Ryan Friel, and then, you know, you slowly got to know the guys. I didn't know much about them. You know, it was only 10 days of spring, but as soon as the season started, I got off to such a hot start. And I, I beat the Cubs on day one, and um, or it was the second game of the season. I hit that homer. And then yeah. five days later, we go to Chicago. I hit another Red homer. <laughs> yeah, I hit another homer and win that game. So now I'm two and zero. Oh, and then I just remember I was five and zero. Oh. I remember I dominated the game in in, um, in Washington. Went complete game. And by the time 
that happened. You know, you, there was just a respect level from winning the World Series and being an established Major League player, and also this team was really hungry for starting pitching because they felt like they had a ball club to to compete as long as they could get somebody to to, to pitch 200 innings. Yeah. And Harang was the only guy really holding it down. And so that that season, you know, I went 240 innings. Harang went 233. I put up 23 quality starts. You know, Harang punched out 180. Like we really, there was no one else really in the rotation holding it down but us two, and we were only a couple of games out from making the play. Else. But you like the city? What was your first impression of the, of the city? Or you know, because that's a lot different than Boston or Florida. Yeah, I, I rem- what I remembered from my pirate days coming through here was that they would always put us downtown, where you could walk through the little Skyway system to get some little mall that just felt very kind of odd and <laughs> yeah. Very, yeah, yeah, it felt yeah, very, it felt very creepy and kind of like half stores <laughs> open and half yeah, not. And I'm walking re- back in time. Yeah, I don't really know what's going on here. And I, there was a there was a lot of bums in the city. I just remembered that a lot of birds and a lot of bums. That's that that was really my first impression from way back. But then. You know, as I got here, I didn't. I got up to Mount Adams, and I started realizing that the town was a little bit different than it was six years earlier. And then it obviously just kept evolving. And you know, once I got comfortable with the team and having a good time there, I could. You know, it wouldn't have mattered if I lived in a in a in a, in a box outside of the stadium. Like I, I would make it home. You know, and it, so it felt good. And I really, I really started to enjoy the smaller town and not being so much under the microscope. You know, I, I what I what I enjoyed about being under the microscope in Boston was that when you came to the ballpark every night, people expected you to win like it was a World Series game. And I liked that pressure. And I liked the fact that if you didn't do well, they were going to kill you in the paper and on sports talk radio which was fine i loved that pressure but what i didn't like is you'd go out at night and man they would they'd be they'd be writing about you in literally in the boston globe like in the regular old paper man they'd be talking about you being out at a bar and what you were wearing and how people were approaching you and if 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 women were touching you you know what i mean like it was it was a little bit too much of of the uh, paparazzi crap for me um, so by the time I got here, realizing that I could go out in Mount Adams and no one really cared what you were doing, except for the people that were right there with you, and you could go to the ballpark the next day without that kind of worrying about that. I mean, yeah, because social like Twitter wasn't a, a huge thing yet at that point. No, it didn't exist. Didn't exist in '06. The only thing you really had was was just starting to come, which was like. You know, like MySpace. the dirty. No, no, that was already oh, that was dirty. out. Like, it, was like, it was like a little bit of the blogging and the yeah. drunkathlete.com. There was, a, there was a little bit of that. Yes, that was a little bit going on. But as far as anybody knowing where you were in that moment in time, you couldn't, you couldn't find anybody. And 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 they weren't writing. You know, I didn't mind that stuff. I just didn't want to be, you know, in the main paper. I mean, Derek Lowe. It, they would have him in the regular paper, man. Like where he was having breakfast every day. You know, and then it'd be like, you know, Derek Lowe at this strip club. And it would just be like so normal. I was just like, this is crazy, man. Like, I got to go out and I have to like hide from everybody. It just doesn't, it doesn't feel, that that part of it didn't feel good. So you got to see the Reds break the, the our own little streak of not making the playoffs. Like, what was that like from when you got here yeah. until 2010? It was, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't. I didn't think much of it at the time, I guess, because I had had my, I had had my fill, not my yeah. fill, because you, you wanted me in the playoffs every year. But I'd, I, you experienced the pinnacle. Yeah, so just the making pinnacle. the playoffs. Yeah, it was, well, I just, th- I just think it wasn't, it wasn't like, uh, I wasn't uh, super hard up to have to make the playoffs, right? Yeah. I was in a new place. I was, you kind of felt like I was for the first time playing for my own contracts, right? So a little bit of that, it probably became a little bit more personal at that point because everything you were doing on the field at that point was going to determine whether you were going to be a guy making a million bucks or making 12 million bucks, right? So you're kind of going hard at that a little bit and fueling your own ego about staying healthy now and being a frontline starter and can you survive in this game for a decade and all that. 
Um, so for the first for the first year, I didn't even think about it. I just, I just played and I just had a great season and we barely missed the playoffs and and I thought you know what whatever we'll be back next year. But what you didn't realize was that you know you were on a different team now and they didn't have quite the same money and they weren't going to go out and get a Kurt Schilling. You know, and so when we when we when we, tra- when we traded Felipe Lopez and we traded Austin Kearns for Bill Bray and Gary Majeski, it yep. really sank the ship because it took away the one thing this team had, which was offense, right? Yeah. And and so that that really put us from like almost being able to make the playoffs to really putting us down in a hole a little bit. And so then, you know, I had no idea what we had in the minor league system. I didn't know who Johnny Cueto, Homer Bailey. We hadn't even drafted Votto, Mike Leake yet. Bruce. Joey Votto, Jay Bruce. I had no idea who any of these guys were. I'd never heard of them. I wouldn't have known them from a hole in the wall. So it took a while where I just thought, you know, I'm just going to do the best I can and play here. But then... We, you, you saw you saw it turning a little bit. You saw how special Joey could be as they were getting a little bit closer to the big leagues, and you started hearing whispers about how good Johnny was. And um, Scott Rowland comes in. That was much. That was that was after that a little bit, but that well, that was in ten. In ten, I think. Yeah, yeah. He, he came, but that was kind of after we had already had Jay Bruce, and I knew who all those guys were. Right. But by the time it turned, and it was like, oh, okay, this is, and then then that felt like a separate team. In my mind, I almost played for two two different Reds teams. One would have been 06 to, Griffey, to 9, Dana, yes, yeah. and then post-Griffey, basically, and almost felt like post-Dunn, too. That, that second act was really fulfilling for me because I got a chance to make an impact on the one thing that made that team make the playoffs, which was the starting five. Yeah. Right? And so I had played on two teams where no one missed a start, and that was 04, we win the World Series, and in 12. And that's Johnny, Homer... Lucas. No, you know he's no. Not on that? It's me, Leek, Latos, Homer Lato. Bailey, Latos. and Johnny Cueto. Those five guys, Volquez had already left. That's and right. Left in ten, Volquez was there, but by twelve he was gone. And so I, you know, I really got to kind of raise those guys in the game. And there's, you know, Leek, Leek for sure, um, is not. You know, I helped him out a lot in the game. Not not saying I'm, I, I helped his skill level at all, but just. The approach that I brought to the everyday mindset of not not having a lot of ups and downs and being in a good mood every day and crushing the weight room if I had to and finding a way to bring it, whether it was having to listen to Pearl Jam on 10 in, 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 in the locker room blaring or if it was just coming in after a day game in Chicago, wait till we fly back and work out at 11 o'clock at night because it was just too early to do it in Wrigley. All those little nuances really affected Johnny Cueto and Mike um, Leak. You know, and then and I also got to control Latos in a way, even though he was a knucklehead. It was like I was probably the only guy who could even make any kind of an impact on his mentality. You know, so I really got a chance to 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 help those guys out and be part of it and be you know almost ten years older than those guys. Was I mean, that the was, was that the first time you felt like you had made the transition from learning to being the the teacher, the mentor? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And in Boston, I was I was 27 years old, and by today's standards, they would consider that a veteran in the game. <laughs> right. But at that time, I was basically like the water boy on that team. You know what I mean? I was completely flying under the radar of those other four guys and that whole team. I mean, like I said, everybody was in their mid-30s. They were all multimillionaires driving Porsches to the stadium, and I was still driving a 1996 Ford Explorer. You know what I mean? It was like I was, I was out of my element there, but I, you know, I... I got my foundation, and then by the time I came over here, the team was was still pretty old with Scott Hatterberg and Rich Aurelia. We even had, you know, some guys in spring that got released. When, like when Brandon Phillips came, he he took over for Tony Womack yeah. in the very beginning of the year. So it was, it was a pretty veteran team too. And I I was just kind of it felt like I was playing for myself in a way because you just got traded over and you didn't have any roots in the city or anything. Sure. So it took a little while. By the time 2010 comes and I realize that these younger guys are going to need some direction here. Yeah, it was the first time that I could be a bit of a teacher, and it was nice. 
What about the different managers you've uh, dealt with at the Reds from we had Dusty Baker when you first came to No, the very first one was Jerry, Jerry Naren. Okay. Yeah. So it goes Jerry Naren for 06 and then in 07 he gets fired and Pete McCannon takes Pete over McCannon. for a minute. Then Dusty takes over in 8. So D- Dusty gets 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 and 13, right? I believe. And then and then uh, Brian Price, Price takes over, yeah. Because Price takes over when I leave. Right. So um you know, Jerry Jerry was a guy who, this is a funny story, he, he, he just came from Boston the year before in 03. So, or in 04, he was there. He was part of that organization. So he he gets over as the manager, and, and he knew I was disgusted about being traded, so he calls me in the office that very first day, and he goes, hey, man, he goes, I know you don't want to be here, because to be honest with you, I don't want to be here either <laughs> and it was like no way you just said that but you know you just you just come from a place and you you asked me earlier about the nuances the difference between the organizations a couple of things that that seem like it's no big deal but when when at the time it it is a big deal i come from boston where every day we have two chefs there cooking meals as every team major league team has now where you're having breakfast in the morning and spring training and they're asking you what kind of omelet you want and there's plenty of food out and then also we've got a guy who's traveling with us who's a masseuse who's just unbelievably world-class who actually was here a long time before with a guy named Mike Morgan. Remember Mike Morgan pitched like 25 years in the big leagues and he pitched for the Reds. And this guy um, named Russell was there, a Hawaiian guy, and he was just an unbelievable masseuse and he became part of your workout program. You'd work out on these certain days and then you went in for Russell during the game at certain times and he'd be massaging players and backup catchers during the game and they had this whole flow in Boston. It was always kind of ahead of the curve. Well, I come here and I walk in and they have no food. There's no breakfast and spring training for the Reds at all. Lunch is like a Subway sandwich that's like, you know, 20 feet long and chopped up into pieces. That, that's it, man. And there's no there's no traveling masseuse. There's no chiropractor um, on the road at all. It's like there's just a lot of amenities that I was used to that are like, whoa, we're going back in time here a little bit. And so all those all those little things kind of you realize affect you at first. But then, you know, you, you come along and then the Reds kind of slowly caught up to the game. You know, it's like an evolution yeah. in the game on, on the medical side and stuff. And. They finally got there. Is that you knocking on Castellini's door like, hey, uh, we got breakfast up there in Boston. Are you guys? Uh- <laughs> yeah, not me personally, probably. I mean, he, he would have had some conversations with me, and I would have said some things to him, but it, it's, it's a slow trickle effect. People start humming about it a little bit, and then it kind of goes out. But, you know, a lot of times it always comes down to money, and at the end of the day, it's just like there, there's nowhere you can go on planet Earth where people aren't wanting to save money. So it's like, you know, sometimes they're always trying to cut corners on things. So... You mentioned that uh, you did that cover album when you were with the Red Sox. How long have you played music? I picked up a... You know, it's weird because I, I had a family that played music constantly, right? So I, when I was in the Keys as a kid, my grandmother is a music teacher for like 70 years. She, When I'm a kid, I'm in that house a lot, and she has people from six years old to 65 years old coming to the house every day after school, after she's already been a teacher. She, they come in and learn cello, violin, piano or you know guitar in the house and so i'm seeing this and there's always people singing around my father's always singing he's playing the piano he's playing the drums my mother's my sister they all play music but i don't touch it at all until i'm 22 i'm in double a with the uh, pittsburgh pirates and somebody gives me an acoustic guitar just never had a guitar around the house i don't know why it was always the piano and the violin and so i um i picked that up for the first time and it, it was also in 90 
92, 93, I'm a freshman and a sophomore in high school and the whole Seattle scene is hitting. So I'm starting now to not only be in the weight room and hear the mamas and the papas and the Beatles and Credence from my father, which was all good stuff, but it didn't really hit me like a ton of bricks. But now I hear Stone Temple Pilots and Nirvana and um, Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. And it's like, whoa, this is coming from a different place. It just felt completely different to me. It felt very personal. It just felt like these guys were singing from a place that was more true. It wasn't like, it didn't seem like they were putting on an act. It felt like they were singing about their life a bit more. And it was all coming from a dark place, which wasn't really my vibe at all. I was always an optimist and always have been, but, but for whatever reason, it just made me feel good. And so when that guitar was put in front of me, I immediately just said, okay, I want to play that stuff. And so I started trying to learn whatever it was, Creed, Oasis, Stone Temple Pilots, Pearl Jam songs. And it just became something that once you figured it out and I could sing, it started It started becoming like, man, I, I, I can't not do this. The guitar is over there looking at me like, hey, man, I, I need to be played. Especially with the being on the road and in hotels and stuff. Did yeah, absolutely. It was something also to break up some of the time. And then all, over time you realize, you know, there were, there were times like I remember it was funny because you know, a lot of times guys on Major League Baseball teams, we all know each other very intimately at the ballpark and away from the ballpark sometimes not so much, right? Like, uh, yeah. I'm, I might there might be one guy on the team that you hang out with every day. You work out with them every day. You play grab ass in the shower even, whatever it is. Like, there's <laughs> all this stuff. Is, these guys are super intimate in the locker room, but, but, sure. but I couldn't tell you what their wife looked like. I couldn't tell you if they played video games at night. I wouldn't know kids. what they do. Yeah, yeah I, sometimes yeah. you just don't know. And so... I remember around 2012, you know, there's always these stories about me because I liked nightlife and I liked being out, right? And I always had people back to my hotel room if I could on the road or here in Cincy, whatever it was. I always had people around. But I never really hung out with the Latin guys that much, right? Because they went to different clubs or whatever it was. And so I never hung with Volquez and Quato. And one night I remember ran into him in Houston and I had a group of people I was going to bring back to my room and Ryan Hannigan was there and some girls or whatever. And, 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 um, and those guys come to my room and they're like, you know, I, I could tell that they were just like, what are we going to do in this room, man? Because the, you don't have a juke, you don't have like a, a, a radio in here or anything. You don't have any Johnny Walker. Like, what are we going to do in this room? So we just piecemealed some stuff out of the mini bar or whatever, but I had my guitar. And by the end of the night, they left there going, that's what that guy does knew. all the time. I never knew I had that. no idea that you can make it go like that. You know what I mean? And, and what, what, what you need for that is people in the room who are enjoying the music, right? Yeah. Without that, it's, 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 it, you're dead in the water, which has happened as well. And I'll just put the thing aside and say we can do something else. But if you have people who are just like shouting out classic rock songs, like, do you know Glycerine? You know? Yeah. Do, 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 do That's you know? a perfect way to end a party. You don't Absolutely. Wanna, not, not, not the middle of the party. You don't want to bust out the no, axes. Absolutely you know, not. Everybody's getting rolling. No but when doubt. everybody's starting to leave and... Yes. Yeah. When it's quieting down and maybe you're getting some snacks and people are just winding down on their last couple of little drinks, whatever, yeah, it's always a good time. Well, there's all, there's also, and, and I say this with all due respect, there's also probably like, a, he's a baseball player, you know, he says he plays the guitar and sings, like, how good could he be, right? Because, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. you know, know. The, the first time that I met you, I don't know if you remember this, it was my very first Reds Fest yep. that I was ever a part of. And they wanted me to, um, they wanted me to do like some stand up out on the stage, and I said, uh, I was like, why? Well, I, I just don't know how it's gonna go here because like stand up needs like intimacy and like the right setting, and this is like pure chaos at right. the Duke Energy Center. Right. I was like, I won't even be able to tell if anybody's laughing or not. Right. And so I was like, I don't know if I just want to do straight stand-up. So I wrote this parody of Dust in the Wind called Dusty Please Win. <laughs> and uh, On YouTube, by the way. And I, and I went out, I was backstage, and I was going up right before you, 
And I remember thinking, like, oh, I finally get to hear Bronson because I've heard, like, oh, I heard he plays music. And I was sitting backstage, and you went out there and just started singing. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, this guy is the real deal. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I had that premonition because it's like he's so he's a great baseball player. Like, how good could he be at right. this how, other how side little that, thing, right. you right. know? And to be honest with you, you know, over the years, you know, people now that I've even played with for a long time, you know, they're like, and you're on a whole nother level now, you know, you're constantly growing, you know, and I'm, I'm just getting to the point now where I'm starting to get semi-comfortable on the stage, you know we what I mean? You have the time like, to devote to I, that right. side like, of it. There's, you know, my voice is in much better shape now than it's ever been. It was never in shape back then, you know, and, and, and even just me playing the guitar is, is just not a good fit for a show in general because I'm just not a good guitar player in comparison to guys who really can play, right? So, like, um, you know, me just sitting with an acoustic guitar as we did in, in the Red Stadium not long, you know, this yeah, past year. Yeah, I can pull that yeah. off, you know, really, really easily, and it sound it sounds good. But I, I always, I actually always enjoyed that because you know you're going to get that sentiment from people, which was you play baseball at the highest of levels. There's no way that you can play music at a level that's going to be anywhere near that, right? And and I really have always enjoyed people being very intimate in my hotel room or wherever, and just be like, I don't know if you've ever been this close to somebody, but. I'm going to play this thing. And if you like music at all, you're going to feel it. Yeah. Right? Like yes. when I yeah. get on this thing, you're going to know I'm here and it's not going to be for, it's not going to be just bull. And I've really enjoyed over the years, especially if there's just one or two people in the room who just enjoy that type of music. And man, you can just see them just being like, Whoa, dude. Like, yes. you know, it's like they want to just grab it and be like, I don't want to let this thing go because if you haven't been that intimate with, with live music, sometimes it can be a bit different. Right. And it's, it's, you know, it's similar with stand up. It's like, how funny can you be if I've never heard of you? Right. You know, and I, I thrive on that, you know, right. because I know what I've got in my pocket. Right. So like the look on their face, so, like, especially when I, before I was headline and I was like the middle guy, you know, like, how good could you be if I haven't heard of you and you're not the main guy? Right, right, right. You know what I mean? It's like after the show, it'd be like, I can't believe like you're like the middle guy or right. whatever. And I loved that part <laughs> of it as much as the performance as I loved surprising people who had like low expectations right. for me. Is there a certain setting? Like for me, if I was, if I'm thinking about playing music, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about small, intimate, dark, kind of creepy plays, low lighting. Is that, are you feeling that same way? Typically for stand up yeah. yeah i mean you know if you were if if you're able to do like the taft theater or the aronoff and it's full of people who are there to see stand up so they're there with the mindset of seeing stand up you can still kind of capture that it doesn't have necessarily the intimacy but you know like i toured for a summer with larry the cable guy and we were doing like you know, Charlotte Bob Katarina, where there's nine or 10,000 people there. And I said, I've said many a times is even as the, the opener for him, that's the closest I'll ever feel to being a rock star. Right. And that's just based on number of people who are dialed into what you're doing. Right. But in terms of like the intimacy and the low ceiling and the dark room, like that's where I feel like comedy can thrive no matter how many people are in the room right. you know what i mean when right. you're not able to look to the side and and judge whether you're going to laugh based on if somebody else is laughing like that kind of thing like it sets the mood where you can really connect with people one on one even though you're talking to a, a, a whole room of them right yeah i feel the same way musically you know it's like the times you know a lot of times i'm i'm playing now and it's it's hard to get people out as you know i mean you can you can play shows 
all day long and you can be Bronson Royo in Cincinnati. It makes no difference. It's hard to get, you know, more than a couple hundred people out to, to listen to anything or do anything, right? I mean, you're asking them to come out of their house, pick a day, have their kids put somewhere and spend some money, whether it's 10 bucks or 50 bucks, it makes no difference. And But, you know, I find that, you know, as long as people are engaged there, you know, I, I saw a show the other night uh, downstairs from the Taft in there, that small little room and it was just, you know, maybe a hundred and... 1520 people in there you know and it needed 200 or something to fill up but it still felt good because it was so small and the music was right there in front of you you know and people were engaged with 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 the act you know so it was it was still great yeah i'd rather have a hundred people who are really wanting to be there than 500 people who got free tickets right you know what i mean yep. like having a vested interest it makes all the difference you know and um the other thing I want to bring up before we wrap up here is I see you got an iPhone now. I remember I texted you a couple <laughs> weeks ago and I was like, it said like delivered. And I was like, oh, it went through. Because like several years ago, we were talking at Reds Fest and you were like, well, let me know if you're going to make it down to like Sarasota, Tampa in the off season. And uh, and he he goes here. I'll call you. What's your number? And he pulls out a flip phone. Yeah. And this was like this was like three years ago, yeah. like three or four years ago. And I was like, Do you get? You're like, I don't get text messages. I don't get anything. Like, <laughs> like it was it was. I couldn't believe it. But it, but it makes sense. Like after hearing some of the stuff you talked about today, was that just like on purpose to avoid distraction and keep your routine the way it was to be able to just. You can call me. You can leave a voicemail. Right. I can call you back. Yeah, right. well, it's it probably was, a budget. It was right. Right. Expensive. Actually, that that actually came up in spring training of 2015. So they had they have the union meeting every year, and every year you have this one really serious union meeting that lasts like three or four hours, and they go to each team. They used to go to each team. Now they're trying to do an assembly a little bit bigger. But and Tony Clark it was his first year, and he was really harping on the fact that it was my first year with the Diamondbacks, and he kept saying, "Guys, you got to get on the MLB app. You got to get on the MLB." app and then he also was saying we don't know if a strike's going to be coming so you really need to save your pennies save your money and get on the mlb app so you can get all the information and so about halfway through i raised my hand i said tony you're talking out of both sides of your mouth here bro i said you're you're, you're asking me to freaking save all my pennies but you want me on the mlb app i said you know your phone costs about eight hundred dollars i got this flip phone bro it don't get the and so he's like that's it bronson he's like somebody in this room buy him a damn smartphone he said you and andrew luck or whatever his name is from the from the, oh, yeah, from the Colts. Yeah, he's like yeah. only two guys left in sports with flip phones but you know the culmination of that was a blend of a lot of things it was it was i had this deal with sprint and time warner cable had paired up in 06 at the end of 06 i'd done those billboards around town here i don't know if you saw much for time warner cable they were around downtown a little bit and Sprint had paired up with them, so they had these flip phones. This is prior to the uh, smartphones being out that were really ahead of their time. You could watch TV on it on this little tiny flip phone. You could watch like ESPN, and it would give you directions and stuff. So that to me was a really small phone. I was like, this thing's great. So then the iPhone comes not long after that, and people start going with it. And I just stay with my thing because I like routine, right? Yeah. And I just don't like to come out <laughs> of my routine. But at that same time, you know, I'm now becoming that guy in the locker room who's supposed to be setting an example and talking to these guys about certain things and I'm now realizing that it is it is a, a, a conversation piece to talk to a guy like Araldus Chapman who's going to walk around in his rookie year with $400,000 worth of jewelry around his neck right Yeah. and it's going to be like I've seen guys that made $40 million in the game and before they even retired they didn't have a penny to their name Right, like, and so Jeez. that that was a bit of it was it was it was it was small. The battery lasted a long time. I love routine, but now also 
is this conversation piece with people. And then as time went on, it just became more and more ridiculous. And I was just like, I'm just going to keep it. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to keep it. And so where it actually, it just, it's been, it's been four months maybe. Since I was going to say, I was sending you a text. I was like, oh yeah, my I just I just got rid of my last one. So I, the, 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 the final straw that broke the camel's back was, well, I said when I retired, I would get one. And then I didn't. And then I said, I think I'm just going to be cool with the flip phone. But I travel a lot, and I'm in other countries a lot. You can't use a flip phone in other countries at all anymore. And are you on the MOB app? Uh, no, I never, I never did make it to the MLB. But, but, but I, I also had been texting from an iPad that I had for a lot of years because I realized the iMessage worked in other countries. Yeah. So that was kind of my backup thing to use Uber and stuff. And so I had this iPad and I had been texting people like Eddie Vedder for a long time, for like two years on that so we could exchange pictures and stuff. And so those people had stopped texting my phone. They would only text me on the iPad, which I had basically you know set that up like yeah. that way. And so then I'm in Seattle this year, not long ago, and I was going to go to a Pearl Jam show, and I was going to see him in Missoula, Montana. And I texted, and I said, hey, man, I'm with my sister and her husband. Uh, we probably won't see you tonight in Seattle. I know it's going to be crazy. you got a lot of people around, I'm assuming, and but maybe I'll catch you in Missoula, Montana when it'll be quiet. So I get back to the hotel. And after the show, and I get a text from him that's like, hey, man, where are you? I want to have a beer with your sister. And it's like, that that really pissed me off. And then two days later, I left my, my last flip phone. I lost it in the cab. And I was kind of like, you know what? I, I'm traveling so much. It's just, I'm just going to have to succumb to it now. And so I went and got the, the, the old five, the SE, that looks like it's 20 years old, too. But but it is. There you go. There you go. And so I, I you know, I'm really enjoying it, He has the H phone. He doesn't yes. even have the iPhone. Is that the four? I have to take, no, I think this is a five. I still have to take stuff off of it because it doesn't have enough room. I do have the MLB app, though. So you I can do. Links to the Indians. And the only reason I have it. And, uh, yeah, but I still have to take stuff off of it. To so create room. No music, no photos, nothing. nothing. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. We talk about the deal with Time Warner. You know, I guess now more and more, you see more and more local players advertising local businesses. But your JTM commercials. Yeah, JTM. <laughs> I know. They're legendary. They're still legendary. I posted on Facebook that we were going to be talking to you today, and the first comment was, together again. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And you know what's funny is that that jingle, I just ran into the kid who wrote that jingle. He does a lot of commercials and stuff. Ran into him in the airport on the way to Mexico, like well, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Yeah. And... Uh, Brandon, he, he he opened that song up with hitting this E minor backwards. It has kind of a it has a strange ring to it, and so I've I've figured out what that was at this point. And so sometimes I'll just hit that thing backwards and start the beginning of that song, and people know it immediately. You can never not hear it. Is that you your know? closer at your shows? No, I, I've never I've never done it. But you know what? I probably should do that at Bogart's you in the middle of the totally set. I should just strum it backwards. <laughs> I know. Chris Welsh isn't doing anything. He'll come. No. He'll come sit there. I tell you what, though. Sad. But you know, I hadn't watched those commercials since we made them after that very first year we made them yeah I and, the, and I never watched them until last year and I was on the plane and I was watching them and Welsh walks by me I said Welsh have you watched these JTM commercials anytime recently and he said yeah yeah I watch them every once in a while I mean I was almost crying I was laughing so hard they're great like, they're, they're epic like, they are epic and that I'd say for three years after that a lot of times, even on the road, I'd be warming up in the bullpen for a game, and I'd just hear somebody, we're together again. <laughs> and the cool thing about it was, too, that I got I, I sang all those parts. Like, he gave me that and said, do you want to do them? And I said, yeah, I'll do them. So I went to my buddy's house in Boston, and we in the studio one day, we just banged out all these. But it was weird, because you had to sing a different line all the time. There was, like, 20 yeah. lines you had to do. It'd be That's like, right. beef hoagie, yeah. we're together again. And then you had to do a jalapeno popper. <laughs> you had to keep changing it. Oh, my God. 
So, all right. So we'll start wrapping up here. I've, I mean, we haven't even gotten into all the rock star stuff. No. But what's uh, his friend Ed? Yeah, Ed, my Ed. friend Ed. I know. You know. You know. It's funny, man. It's like I like to call him Eddie. I always, but he always sends that to you. He always sends when he texts me. He always says Ed. Ed, Ed, he never says Eddie, and so I, I I'll find myself a lot of times now, an old man now just saying Ed because it, it almost seems like he wants people to do that because it feels more personable. I think because yeah, er, everyone separates. knows him as Eddie. Yeah. yeah, who's the biggest person in your cell phone? The biggest person on my cell or phone. Like the most yeah, yeah, like the most probably famous guys I would say would be probably uh, probably Charlie Sheen. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> Eddie, Mister Wonderful from Shark Tank. Yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, we got a story about that. Mr. Wonderful, yeah. He was just here, right? He did something in town. Supposedly. Uh, um, those three I'd guys. I'd like to send him a text. Trying to, think of who else is, Uh-oh. trying to think of who else is in there. Sometimes when I lost that flip phone, you know, I, I, I just thought no one's going to look in it anyway. But I've I've got I've got a lot of musicians in there. But I, I would They wouldn't know how to use it to find sure, the new yeah. What's um, You're still working with the Reds a little bit, yes? Yeah, I, 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 just by choice, you know. I'm not yeah. getting paid by them. I don't have any official capacity with them. But I just, um, you know, I go down to the ballpark um, once or twice a homestand usually. And I'm, you know, I'm cleaning shoes and passing out laundry half the time. No. I swear. I go, I, well, I said I was going to do that anyway. You know, I used, to, I used to joke around and tell Leek and Latos. They'd be like, you know, they'd put up on the board and be like, Bronson Arroyo, 35 everyone else 24, 23, 25 and they'd be like yeah old man, old man i say okay I'm being here cleaning the shoes passing out the laundry when y'all are freaking 38 I want to see if y'all are ponying it up like me you know and uh, I told Latos and Leek one of y'all two is going to have to retire before me I guarantee that and Latos did so <laughs> he didn't really retire but he got retired yeah, yeah. so but I, I go down there and I and I pass out the laundry sometimes and we clean the shoes and I and I, I hang out with the clubhouse guys more than anybody yeah. what people don't know about a, about a major league locker room is that you know Ownership even comes and goes. GMs come and go, players come and go, and managers come and go. But the guys who clean the shoes, put out the laundry, and put out the food. Especially here. It's yeah, a they're family. For, yeah, they're there for 20 or 30 years. Yeah. I mean, even the guys that you never heard of are yeah. there. Yeah. And so I love hanging out with those guys. And I go down and, and we work out in the off season sometimes. We you know we do workouts together and, and uh, or just go down and chew the fat with them and, and see what's going on. So I like to go down there. And then sometimes there's guys who want to talk about pitching a little bit, and, and, and I do that. Or Brian Price asked me to hold a couple of meetings about very specific things in, in one's career in spring training. Um, you know, we were up in that box that night, and, and we pl- I played that music yeah. for them yeah. just to raise some money for the Bernie Stowe Field. Yeah. And, um, you know, whatever they need, I told them you just call me, but I wouldn't sign up for anything that was going to be on a regular basis because I, I wanted some freedom in my life. So you're playing music. Or do you have more concerts outside of Cincinnati coming up? Uh, yeah, but not for a while. We've got summer... You know, there's a lot of charity shows that people will ask about here in Cincinnati. And so, you know, I just try to pay the guys a little bit, but I try to make it as cheap as possible. I mean, sometimes we can, you know, play for $1,000 really just to... to you just like doing it. I, I love performing, and I, yeah. I rarely ever take any money from it. And I just... I, as long as there's people there who care, it's it's nice to, to be able to do that. And obviously, opportunities come up more here than anywhere else. But we have... We've already got some book shows booked in New England for the summertime. <coughs> and... Um, you know, the guys here, they want to start expanding out a little bit and playing maybe one week a month if we can. I've got some shows in Florida in the wintertime around my hometown, and we might be doing something for the Red Sox in spring training. So, you know, we ch- we play when we can. You know, we don't have to, but, you know, these guys have been, in, have been they've been, you know, rockers their whole life, and they, they, uh, they have regular jobs now for a long time. They make good enough money that they don't need the money, but it's just nice to get up in front of 150 yeah. people and, and play some music. So in this newfound free time... You know, you're obviously getting to do whatever you want right now. Like, fast forward two, three years, like, 
what do you see yourself doing moving forward? Do you want to get it back into baseball at some, in some capacity? What do you, you want to be just, when you grow up? You just yeah. want to play music, or do you not? You not even thought about it? Yet? No, I don't. I don't think. I don't think I'm ever going to be back in baseball in in a, in a full time capacity. You know, I. It's just really time consuming. People don't realize, you know, you sign up on the dotted line. Let's just say they were just like, hey, Bronson, we'll make you the pitching coach in the big leagues right now. Just hand to hand it to you. You haven't had any experience as a pitching coach, but we're going to give it to you. If they wanted to do that, I mean, honestly, they'd have to pay me like five million bucks a year to, to get me to do it. Like, it's just not worth it for the pool. You know, a pitching coach probably makes anywhere from these days, probably like 200, uh, you know, a really, really, really good pitching coach might be making four or five hundred thousand dollars, you know, and, and it's just not worth my time. I mean, I, I, you're, you're eight months. You're there every day. That's not including the off season. Last year, I played a show with the with the um, Boston Pop Symphony around Thanksgiving, and I sh- took the band to Fenway, and it was November. And out of here come Alex Cora and Dana Lavangi and the whole crew. And I said, "What you guys doing?" They said, "Day one of meetings." So you basically, if you, <laughs> if you make the playoffs, you have some of you're playing through October. You've got maybe 15, 20 days, thirty days off at best, and then you're right back at it. And those guys are at the park twelve hours a day. And, you, you know, the, the more the evolution of the game goes, the more detail you have to pay attention to, whether it's food or statistics and all these different things. You know, they're, they're fine-tuning their craft, and that's what the Astros are doing in the Red Sox, and that's why, you know, every team is trying to continue to get better and why the Reds just signed Turner Ward as their hitting coach because he came from the Diamondbacks to the Dodgers, and now he's coming here. Yeah. And, you know, that, all that stuff, you you got to be serious about your craft. And I've just got too many other things that I want to be serious about other yeah. than that. And I gave the game everything I had to be a player. I don't think I've got it in me to, to do that. If they need me... I can f- see you on TV, though. Like, you know, like MLB Network. Like, you yeah, know, they, they, they've, they've like asked, a, they've a asked. revolving door of guys that they aren't do. there full time, you know. I know. Casey's there a couple days a week. Just take some time off. Yeah, the, maybe I'll, what I'm maybe, saying. Maybe, like, I'll, maybe I'll get maybe I'll after. get there. I don't know. I in, on my in my in my near future, I've got you know playing shows with these guys, playing golf, snow skiing, just taking friends to places that I said that I would do. You know, I've got <laughs> I've got a bit of a bucket list. I like taking people to places that they wouldn't generally get to go to if it wasn't for me, right? That's so awesome. while we're all young and healthy, yeah, right. Awesome. I feel like I got a 15 year window. I also am tr- writing original music for the first time. I've got, a, I've got a band out. Next. I've got a band of guys out in LA that have all been playing, you know, their whole lives. That's what they do. They were in Norris Barkley, you know, my buddy Josh Klinghoffer's in the Chili Peppers. Um, these guys, I sit and write music with them, and I'm writing original music for the very first time ever. And um, I'm gonna. Fun? It's been fantastic because I've never been able to finish songs before. So what I do is I take the music from those guys, I go jam with them and just record it on an iPhone. I bring the music back here and I finish the songs with Elliot Sloan. Oh yeah. And with a kid named C.J. Lambert from around here. And so I'll go to their house and in four hours we'll finish one song every time, and just put it down. And uh, I've been collecting these demos and then I go back out to L.A. and give it to the guys. I'm like, what do you guys think about the shit I wrote over your stuff? And they're like, oh, we like it. Okay, so I just keep doing it so in the next year I think that'll come to fruition and then once I get through this music thing and I don't know if I ever will it's going to be part of my life forever but if I ever get to where it feels like I'm not quite going at it so hard then I don't know what what time that will open up and maybe maybe you've gone to enough places where you're just sick of going to the Bahamas or something you know what I mean like yeah. I, there might come a time when I'm kind of feel like I've been in the house for two days with nothing to do, right? And I need something to do. And maybe I would gravitate back to the game. But I, I've always been a guy who's got a lot of things going on. I juggle a lot of people, and I don't know that I'm going to need that in my life. I think I can fill my time elsewhere. That's great. 
We'll be plugging your show this Friday at Bogarts, Friday, November 9th. Yeah, this uh, is some, some kids named Freak Mythology are opening up at 8 o'clock. They're young, young, supposed to be super talented kids that came out of, a, I think there's like a thing like a thing called School of Rock. Yeah, there's a Right, school but of it's rock. in different yeah. cities. It's all over the place, and yeah. I think they came out of there. Um, I don't know much about them, but they're going to open up at 8 o'clock. We're hitting the stage at 9 o'clock, and it's, hopefully it'll be... It'll be a good show. I was at band practice last night. The band is absolutely ripping, man. I mean, these guys can play, man. It's all I got to do is hold down the vocal, which is... And you can. I've heard awesome. you, man. So It's uh, Bogart's, so, same stage as Prince. And, oh, uh, dear. Tom Petty's been in there. Oh, I know. I walked in there the other day, just walking around backstage and seeing, you know, Lemmy autograph, all these guys from yeah. Motorhead. I mean, it's like everybody under the sun has played this place. And it's the first place I'm probably... Other than playing in casinos in New England, but this is probably the first. I've, I did something for the Red Sox and CBGBs before it got tore down once, uh, but that was just me filming some, uh, like a spot for, for um, Nesson. But but as far as playing a show in a quote-unquote a real rock club, man, this is might be the first one. It should well, be nice. I hope you have a great crowd. If you're listening to this before the show, thinking about going, go, because this guy is, is the real deal. And I appreciate you being here today and uh, hanging out with us. We ask our guests to give us a word that people can use as a coupon code when they get online uh, until the next episode airs. So uh, if you were going to give us a word, what word would you give us? Uh, I'd give you the word authentic. Authentic. Ooh, authentic. Easy enough. All right. Love it. So type in authentic between now and the next uh, episode being yeah. released. You'll save 20%. And uh, if you stop into our store... Uh, one of our three stores and mention the word authentic until the next episode comes out. You can save money there too. Yeah. I wish we had a Bronson Oreo shirt to give. Oh man! Oh man! Do you remember I don't that? think he knows about that. No, I never saw that? that shirt. But I, oh, I, no, <laughs> I, I, like I saw. I saw got, got like a ago. Got Milk shirt from 06. It was like a Got Bronson shirt. That's that one. And I, I've got a really cool shirt from that rant that. Um, Brian, Brian Price, Price went that on. That was us. That was you. That it was yeah. all the words in his face. In his face. Yeah. I still have that. I still wear that now. I, you know, I sent that to him and I said, I because it came. Um, my buddy Brian Harris, he he worked at the stadium for twelve years, but he works for me, and and he found that he was out in Arizona with me, and he goes, hey, look at this shirt, and I'm like, this is awesome. So and me and him put it on, and we took a picture of him, and and I sent it to Price, and I said, hey, Price, I said, uh, <laughs> looks like looks like you went on a tangent the other night. I said they. They already made it into a T-shirt here in Arizona. It's a fantastic giveaway at the stadium, and, and you've never seen a response come back so quick. Like what? With question mark, question mark, question mark. Yeah. <laughs> you want to hear something hilarious on that same note? So we did. You know, we we try to skirt the line with you know viral topics. You know, when Homer dropped the f bomb on his post game right. and that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and so uh, we put that shirt out, and about a week later. Probably after you sent that text, a woman comes in our store, and she comes right up to the counter, and she says, I am Brian Price's wife. And we're like, oh, no. And she's like, I need 10 of these shirts. <laughs> Judy! <laughs> so she loved him, and apparently, I guess he he enjoyed them uh, at listen, some Brian, point. Brian, Brian, is the, Brian Price is the guy right, who's clean-cut, straight-laced, but he's sending a thousand emails to everybody in the clubhouse with just the weirdest, dirtiest <laughs> stuff going on, right? He's that, he's that guy, so he can't say anything. <laughs> he's oh, the guy who's he's buttoned up on his game, but if you're on his email reel, it's coming every freaking five minutes. I'm I like, turn it off. I, that. I'm not, I, I, don't like, I said, unsubscribe me, because this stuff be popping up every 12 minutes. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, him now, and home. Are you on social media? 
I have Instagram. That's it. I actually I lost a bet. That's why I have Instagram. You know, if uh, you're gonna, I know, have a rock career. Listen, man, you need. I get it. Listen, yeah. if I would, I should have. When I, I used to make fun of Brandon Phillips when we were sitting on the plane, and he'd be asking me to make up questions for his fans on Twitter and Instagram, so that you know. And now he's got a half a million followers, and I have none. You know, you sh I should have started it way back in the day, just foreshadowing the fact that you could have used it at some point in your life. But you know, I, I, I always just. I, it I've doesn't fit you. I know. It I, just I, 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 fit I you. bounce my life a lot off of man thinking about Eddie Vedder. Honestly, man, you know the music means so much to me in the way that he's carved out his life. And I often think, would Eddie Vedder have an Instagram page? And the answer is no. But given that, obviously they can put forty thousand in an arena any time, any place because the music is so legendary. You know, so it's, a, it's yeah. on a whole other level. But I just tend to in want fairness, to live a life. I just saw a video last week of Eddie Vedder playing uh, with Pearl Jam in Tower Records when they from first 91, started. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and you know, so everybody, everybody did the grind to Absolutely. get to where they absolutely so, it blew up big yeah. enough where they could stop the grind. And but I've right. te I've tended to lean to simplicity. To, to try to buy to, to try to be authentic right to try to yeah, make of course to try to, to try not, not to be that guy who's just putting up a bunch of pictures online to be like look at me look at me right you want you want it you want to come from a place that's true but you know you also want people to show up to your shows and when you release an album of original music next right. year people need to know about it I so know. we'll yeah. do our best to get the word out too cool. so for sure. Bronson thanks, thanks for, for being here man that's awesome yeah. alright <laughs> hello I waited here for Bronson Arroyo, we try to make these evergreen as they say, but if you're in Cincinnati and you're listening before Friday, November 9th of 2018, be sure to go to Bogarts this Friday to check out Under the Covers with the Bronson Arroyo Band. Uh, doors are at 7, show is at 8, and then look for new and original music from Bronson in 2019, hopefully. If you haven't already, go back and plunder the Cincy Shirts podcast archives. We've had Frank Mazzullo, your old pal Duke Sinatra from The Gary Burbank Show, uh, Mo Egger, Cash Wright, Mike Mathis, Johnny Bench, speaking of baseball. They've all been on the show. Uh, really, all the episodes are terrific. Haunted Cincinnati, Abandoned Cincinnati, those are two very popular episodes, as well as Haunted Cincinnati 2, which we dropped a few weeks ago. That's uh, been getting a lot of downloads as well. Be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area. Maybe they went to school here, or vice versa, they grew up here, and then they moved away to go to school or take a job. Today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia, and you can find their music in iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. Find vintage tees from great places like Boston, Phoenix, and Pittsburgh, all those places where Bronson Arroyo played besides Cincinnati. Florida, where he's from. We have a lot of shirts from Florida now. As well as Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, Philadelphia, and more at OldSchoolShirts.com. We have a lot of baseball designs on CincyShirts.com, both just baseball in general and kind of Reds-inspired, along with some... Uh, Actual player tees like that we have, uh, you know, partnerships with guys like Johnny Bench and Sean Casey and people like that. So check those out. Uh, we also have quite a few baseball-inspired designs on old school, including defunct leagues and teams, as well as old ballparks. So check those out. And in case you missed it, the promo code for this episode is authentic. That's lowercase, uppercase. You can capitalize authentic. It'll all work the same way. Use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. And you can also use that code in our physical or brick-and-mortar stores in Over the Rhine, Hyde Park, and now Loveland, of course. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for all the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a review uh, wherever you get the show from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye. Hey!